0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Ink and Ash. My name is Sean Ennis, and today we've got some weird fiction for you. Necromancy, mummies, sorcerers, what else could you possibly want? But first, let's kick things off with a review on Apple Podcasts. Love, by Claudia Cook. Love this show. This is great to listen to while I'm filing and shelving at work. Thank you for the kind words, Claudia. I'm glad to be able to provide you with something to make the time pass quickly while you're at work. And remember, if you want to have a review read here on the show, just go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using right now. As long as I can find it, I'll read it right here on the show. And if leaving a review is too much of a pain, I certainly get that. A rating, hopefully of the five-star variety, is very helpful as well. So now, on to this week's show. As you probably saw in the title, this week's story is called Empire of the Necromancers, and it comes to us from Clark Ashton Smith. We haven't met Mr. Smith before, so let's take a look at his background. Smith was born in January of 1893 in Long Valley, California. He spent most of his life in the small town of Auburn, California, in a cabin that was built by his parents, Timius and Fanny. Smith didn't have much of an education formally, but was by all accounts very bookish and intelligent and had what is often called a photographic memory. He was able to retain most of what he read in books, and while I consider myself to be a bit of a word nerd, Smith took it to another level. According to his biographer, he read an entire dictionary, studying not only the words themselves, but their etymology. He also read through the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica twice, and taught himself French and Spanish so that he could translate poetry. As early as eleven years of age, Smith began to write. He suffered from agoraphobia and did not leave the house much, and despite being accepted into high school in his teenage years, his parents decided it was best for him to continue his education at home. Smith's first published writing was poetry, and he published his first poetry collection, The Star, Treader, and Other Poems, when he was nineteen. This collection brought him some acclaim, but that soon faded when he left the public eye due to health issues. After publishing a long poem called The Hashish Eater, or The Apocalypse of Evil, some eight years later, Smith received a fan letter from H.P. Lovecraft, which started a 15-year friendship between the two. Now, if you've read works by both authors, you can see similarities, and they even use some of the same names of places and beings in their stories, even if their treatment of those elements differ greatly. Smith and Lovecraft later had frequent correspondence with Robert E. Howard, who created the Conan the Barbarian stories, and all three appeared frequently in the pages of Weird Tales. Though they corresponded with each other often, they never actually met in person. While Smith is well known for his fiction, he far preferred writing poetry and only wrote short stories reluctantly in order to eke out a living during the Great Depression era of the 1920s. Smith stopped writing fiction in his early 40s after the death of Lovecraft, Howard, and both of his parents. He still lived alone in the same cabin where he'd spent his life, and he resumed writing poetry and began sculpting. Smith would marry later in life, at age 61, but would only live seven more years after his wedding. He died in Pacific Grove, California at the age of 68 after suffering a series of strokes. This week's story, The Empire of the Necromancers, was first published in Weird Tales in September of 1932. and Of course, we've done stories here from Weird Tales several times. But if you want to hear a background on that historic periodical, check out the story Far Below, which was released back in July of 2018. This story is part of Smith's Zothique cycle, which consists of one poem and 16 short stories that take place on Earth's last continent in the distant future. This story is also a patron request by my patron Matthew, who is a fan of Smith's work, and with good reason. And if you like this story and you want to hear more from the Zothik collection, hit me up on social media at Ink and Pod or via the website inkandashpod.com or leave a YouTube comment at youtube.com slash at inkandashpod and let me know. And now that you've heard about Clark Ashton Smith and the Empire of the Necromancers, let's get to this week's feature presentation right after this. Ink and Ash is brought to you by my fantastic patrons, Dan. Allen, Nate, Julio, Vanessa, Robert, Noel, Nicole, Jennifer, Matthew, Nick and Jay. If you want to join the club and get your hands on exclusive merchandise along with hours of exclusive bonus content, head over to patreon.com/inkandashpod. Another way to help out the show is to leave a review on your favorite listening platform and to tell your friends. And don't forget, if you just want the stories here with no intro and no background, you can go to youtube.com/@inkandashpod. And whether or not you prefer the YouTube format, subscribing and liking videos goes a long way to helping them show up in search results. I've got all the stories from Season 4 already up, and I'll be working on the back catalog soon. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's story. Empire of the Necromancers by Clark Ashton Smith The legend of Matmuar and Sodosma shall arise only in the latter cycles of the earth, when the glad legends of the prime have been forgotten. Before the time of its telling, many epics shall have passed away, and the seas shall have fallen in their beds, and new continents shall have come to birth. Perhaps in that day it will serve to beguile for a little the black weariness of a dying race grown hopeless of all but oblivion. I tell the tale as men shall tell it in Zothique, the last continent, beneath a dim sun and sad heavens, where the stars come out in terrible brightness before eventide. 1. Matmoir and Sodozma were necromancers who came from the dark isle of Nott to practice their baleful arts in Tinarath beyond the shrunken seas. But they did not prosper in Tenerath, for death was deemed a holy thing by the people of that grey country, and the nothingness of the tomb was not lightly to be desecrated, and the raising up of the dead by necromancy was held in abomination. So after a short interval Matmuar and Sodosma were driven forth by the anger of the inhabitants, and were compelled to flee toward Sincor, a desert of the south, which was peopled only by the bones and the mummies of a race that the pestilence had slain in former time. The land into which they went lay drear and leprous and ashen below the huge ember-colored sun. Its crumbling rocks and deathly solitudes of sand would have struck terror to the hearts of common men, and since they had been thrust out in that barren place without food or sustenance, the plight of the sorcerers might well have seemed a desperate one. But smiling secretly with the air of conquerors who tread the approaches of a long-coveted realm. Sodosma and Matmuar walked steadily on to Sincor, Unbroken before them, through fields devoid of trees and grass, and across channels of dried-up rivers, they ran the great highway by which travelers had gone formerly between Sincor and Tenerath. Here they met no living thing, but soon they came to the skeletons of a horse and its rider, lying full in the road, and wearing still the sumptuous harness and raiment which they had worn in the flesh. And Matmoir and Sadozma paused before the piteous bones, on which no shred of corruption remained, and they smiled evilly at each other. The steed shall be yours, said Matmuar, since you are the elder of us two, and are thus entitled to the precedence, and the rider shall serve us both, and be the first to acknowledge fealty to us in Sincorre. Then in the ashy sand by the wayside they drew a threefold circle, and standing together at its center they performed the abominable rites that compel the dead to arise from tranquil nothingness and obey henceforward in all things the dark will of the necromancer. Afterward they sprinkled a pinch of magic powder on the nostril holes of the man and the horse, and the white bones, creaking mournfully, rose up from where they had lain and stood in readiness to serve their masters. So, as had been agreed upon between them, Sadozma mounted the skeleton steed, and took up the jeweled reins, and rode in an evil mockery of death on his pale horse, while Matmoar trudged on beside him, leaning lightly on an Iban staff, and the skeleton of the man, with its rich raiment flapping loosely, followed behind the two like a servitor. After a while in the grey waste they found the remnant of another horse and rider, which the jackals had spared and the sun had dried to the leanness of old mummies. These also they raised up from death, and Matimuar bestrode the withered charger, and the two magicians rode on in state, like errant emperors, with a lich and a skeleton to attend them. Other bones and charnel remnants of men and beasts to which they came anon were duly resurrected in like fashion so that they gathered to themselves an ever-swelling train in their progress through Syncor. Along the way as they neared Yethilrium, which had been the capital, they found numerous tombs and necropoli, inviolate still after many ages, and containing swathed mummies that had scarcely withered in death. All these they raised up and called from sepulchral night to do their bidding. Some they commanded to sow and till the desert fields and hoist water from the sunken wells Others they left at diverse tasks, such as mummies had performed in life. The century-long silence was broken by the noise and tumult of myriad activities, and the lank liches of weavers toiled at their shuttles, and the corpses of plowmen followed their furrows behind carrion oxen. Weary with their strange journey and their oft-repeated incantations, Matmuar and Sadozma saw before them at last, from a desert hill, the lofty spires and fair unbroken domes of steeped in the darkening stagnant blood of ominous sunset it is a goodly land said matmoir and you and i will share it between us and hold dominion over all its dead and be crowned as emperors on the morrow in ethereum i replied Sodosma,
1: for there is none living to dispute us here and those that we have summoned from the tomb shall move and breathe only at our dictation, and may not rebel
0: against us. So, in the blood-red twilight that thickened with purple, they entered Yithilrium and rode on among the lofty, lampless mansions, and installed themselves with their grisly retinue in that stately and abandoned palace, where the dynasty of Nimboff emperors had reigned for two thousand years with dominion over Sincor. In the dusty golden halls they lit the empty lamps of onyx by means of their cunning sorcery, and supped on royal viands provided from past years which they evoked in like manner. Ancient and imperial wines were poured for them in moonstone cups by the fleshless hands of their servitors, and they drank and feasted and reveled in phantasmagoric pomp, deferring till the morrow the resurrection of those who lay dead in Ithilreum. They rose betimes in the dark crimson dawn from the opulent palace-beds in which they had slept, for much remained to be done. Everywhere in that forgotten city they went busily to and fro, working their spells on the people that had died in the last year of the pest and had lain unburied. And having accomplished this, they passed beyond Yithilrium into that other city of high tombs and mighty mausoleums, in which lay the Nimboth emperors and the more consequential citizens and nobles of Sincor. Here they bade their skeleton slaves to break in the sealed door with hammers, and then, with their sinful, tyrannous incantations, they called forth the imperial mummies, even to the eldest of the dynasty, all of whom came walking stiffly, with lightless eyes, in rich swathings sewn with flame-bright jewels. And also later they brought forth to a semblance of life many generations of courtiers and dignitaries. Moving in solemn pageant, with dark and haughty hollow faces, the dead emperors and empresses of Sincor made obeisance to Mutmoor and Sodosma, and attended them like a train of captives through all the streets of Yithyllrium. Afterward, in the immense throne room of the palace, the necromancers mounted the high double throne, where the rightful rulers had sat with their consorts. Amid the assembled emperors in gorgeous and funereal state, they were invested with sovereignty by seer hands of the mummy. Hesteon, earliest of the Nimbath line, who had ruled in half-mythic years. Then all the descendants of Hastion crowding the room in a great throng, acclaimed with toneless, echo-like voices the dominion of Matmuar and Sodozma. Thus did the outcast necromancers find for themselves an empire, and a subject people, in the desolate, barren land where the men of Tenerath had driven them forth to perish. Reigning supreme over all the dead of Syncor, by virtue of their malign magic, they exercised baleful despotism. Tribute was borne to them by fleshless porters from outlying realms, and plague-eaten corpses and tall mummies scented with mortuary balsams, went to and fro upon their errands in Yithilrium, or heaped before their greedy eyes from inexhaustible vaults the cobweb-blackened gold and dusty gems of antique time dead laborers made their palace gardens to bloom with long-perished flowers, leashes and skeletons toiled for them in the mines, or reared superb fantastic towers to the dying sun. Chamberlains and princes of old time were their cup-bearers, and stringed instruments were plucked for their delight by the slim hands of empresses with golden hair that had come forth untarnished from the night of the tomb. Those that were fairest, whom the plague and the worm had not ravaged overmuch, they took for their layman's, and made to serve their necrophilic lust. 2. In all things the people of Singkor performed the actions of life at the will of Matmoar and Sodosma. They spoke, they moved, they ate and drank as in life. They heard and saw and felt with a similitude of the senses that had been theirs before death, but their brains were enthralled by a dreadful necromancy. They recalled but dimly their former existence, and the state to which they had been summoned was empty and troublous and shadow-like. Their blood ran chill and sluggish, mingled with water of lethe, and the vapours of lethe clouded their eyes. Dumbly they obeyed the dictates of their tyrannous lords, without rebellion or protest, but filled with a vague, illimitable weariness, such as the dead must know when having drunk of eternal sleep. They are called back once more to the bitterness of mortal being. They knew no passion or desire or delight, only the black languor of their awakening from Leith and a grey, ceaseless longing to return to that interrupted slumber. Youngest and last of the Nimboth emperors was Ilero, who had died in the first month of the plague. He had lain in his high-built mausoleum for two hundred years before the coming of the necromancers. Raised up with his people and his fathers to attend the tyrants, Ilero had resumed the emptiness of existence without question, and had felt no surprise. He had accepted his own resurrection and that of his ancestors as one accepts the indignities and marvels of a dream. He knew that he had come back to a faded sun, to a hollow and spectral world, to an order of things in which his place was merely that of an obedient shadow. But at first he was troubled only, like the others, by a dim weariness and pale hunger for the lost oblivion. Drugged by the magic of his overlords, weak from the age-long nullity of death, he beheld, like a somnambulist, the enormities to which his fathers were subjected. Yet somehow, after many days, a feeble spark awoke in the sodden twilight of his mind. Like something lost and irretrievable beyond prodigious gulfs, he recalled the pomp of his reign in Githyllrium and the golden pride and exultation that had been in his youth, and, recalling it, he felt a vague stirring of revolt, a ghostly resentment against the magicians who had hailed him forth to this calamitous mockery of life. Darkly he began to grieve for his fallen state and the mournful plight of his ancestors and his people. Day by day, as a cupbearer in the halls where he had ruled aforetime, Ilero saw the doings of Matmuar and Sadozma, He saw their caprices of cruelty and lust, their growing drunkenness and gluttony. He watched them wallow in their necromantic luxury and become lax with indolence, gross with indulgence. They neglected the study of their art. They forgot many of their spells, but still they ruled, mighty and formidable, lolling on couches of purple and rose, they planned to lead an army of the dead against Tenerath. Dreaming of conquest and of vaster necromancies, they grew fat and slothful as worms that had installed themselves into a charnel rich with corruption, and pace by pace with their laxness and tyranny the fire of rebellion mounted in the shadowy heart of Ilero, like a flame that struggles with Lethean damps, and slowly, with the waxing of his wrath, they returned to him something of the strength and firmness that had been his in life. Seeing the turpitude of the oppressors and knowing the wrong that had been done to the helpless dead, he heard, in his brain, the clamor of stifled voices demanding vengeance. Among his fathers, through the palace halls of Ithilreum, Ilero moved silently at the bidding of the masters, or stood waiting their command. He poured in their cups of onyx the amber vintages brought by wizardry from hills beneath the younger sun, He submitted to their contumelies and insults, and night by night he watched them nod in their drunkenness till they fell asleep, flushed and gross amid their arrogated splendor. There was little speech among the living dead, and son and father, daughter and mother, lover and beloved, went to and fro without a sign of recognition, making no comment on their evil lot. But, at last, one midnight. When the tyrants lay in slumber and the flames wavered in the necromantic lamps, Ilero took counsel with Histeon, his eldest ancestor, who had been famed as a great wizard and fable and was reputed to have known the secret lore of antiquity. Histeon stood apart from the others in a corner of the shadowy hall. He was brown and withered in his crumbling mummy cloths, and his lightless obsidian eyes appeared to gaze still upon nothingness. He seemed not to have heard the questions of Alero, but at length, in a dry, rustling whisper, he responded,
1: I am old, and the night of the sepulchre was long, and I have forgotten much. Yet, groping backward across the void of death, it may be that I shall retrieve something of my former wisdom, and between us we shall devise a mode of
0: deliverance. And Hesteon searched among the shreds of memory, as one who reaches into a place where the worm has been, and the hidden archives of old time have rotted in their covers, till at last he remembered and said,
1: I recall that I was once a mighty wizard, and among other things I knew the spells of necromancy, but employed them not, deeming their use and the raising up of the dead an abhorrent act. Also I possessed other knowledge, and perhaps among the remnants of that ancient lore there is something which may serve to guide us now. For I recall a dim, dubitable prophecy made in the primal years at the founding of Yethilrium and the Empire of Singor. The prophecy was that an evil greater than death would befall the emperors and the people of Singor in future times, and that the first and the last of the Nimboth dynasty, conferring together, would effect a mode of release and the lifting of the doom. The evil was not named in the prophecy, but it was said that the two emperors would learn the solution of their.
0: Then, having heard this prophecy from the faded lips of his forefather, Ilario mused a while, and said, I remember
1: now an afternoon in early youth, when searching idly through the unused vaults of our palace, as a boy might do, I came to the last vault and found therein a dusty, uncouth image of clay whose form and countenance were strange to me, and, knowing not the prophecy, I turned away in disappointment, and went back, as idly as I had come, to seek the moated sunlight.
0: Then, stealing away from their heedless kinfolk, and carrying jeweled lamps that they had taken from the hall, Hesteon and Ilero went downward by subterranean stairs beneath the palace, and, Threading like implacable furtive shadows the maze of nighted corridors, they came at last to the lowest crypt. Here in the black dust and clotted cobwebs of an immemorial past, they found, as had been decreed, the clay image, whose rude features were those of a forgotten earthly god. And Ilero shattered the image with a fragment of stone, and he and Hesteon took from its hollow center a great sword of unrusted steel and a heavy key of untarnished bronze, and tablets of bright brass on which were inscribed the various things to be done, so that Sinkor should be rid of the dark reign of the necromancers, and the people should win back to oblivious death. So with the key of untarnished bronze Ilero unlocked, as the tablets had instructed him to do, a low and narrow door at the end of the nethermost vault, beyond the broken image, and he and Histeon saw, as had been prophesied, the coiling steps of somber stone that led downward to an undiscovered abyss, where the sunken fires of earth still burned. And leaving Ilero toward the open door, Histeon took up the sword of unrested steel in his thin hand and went back to the hall where the necromancers slept, lying asprawl sprawl on their couches of rose and purple, with the wan bloodless dead about them in patient ranks. Upheld by ancient prophecy and the lore of the light tablets, Hesteon lifted the great sword and struck off the head of Matmuar and the head of Sadozma, each with a single blow. Then, as had been directed, he quartered the remains with mighty strokes. And the necromancers gave up their unclean lives and lay supine, without movement, adding a deeper red to the rose and a brighter hue to the sad purple of their couches. Then to his kin, who stood silent and listless, hardly knowing their liberation, the venerable mummy of Histeon spoke in sere murmurs, but authoritatively, as a king who issues commands to his children. The dead emperors and empresses stirred, like autumn leaves in a sudden wind, and a whisper passed among them, and went forth from the palace, to be communicated at length by devious ways to all the dead of Sincor. All that night and during the blood dark day that followed, by wavering torches or the light of the failing sun, an endless army of plague eaten leashes of tattered skeletons poured in a ghastly torrent through the streets of Ethilrium, and along the palace hall where Histaon stood guard among the slain necromancers. Unpausing, with vague, fixed eyes, they went on like driven shadows, to seek the subterranean vaults below the palace to pass through the open door where Elero waited in the last vault, and then to wend downward by a thousand thousand steps to the verge of that gulf in which boiled the ebbing fires of earth. There, from the verge, they flung themselves to a second death and the clean annihilation of the bottomless flames. But after all had gone to their release, Hestaeon still remained, alone, in the fading sunset, beside the cloven corpses of Matmoir and Sodosma, There, as the tablets had directed him to do, he made a trial of those spells of elder necromancy which he had known in his former wisdom, and cursed the dismembered bodies with that perpetual life in death which Matmoir and Sodosma had sought to inflict upon the people of Sincor. And maledictions came from the pale lips, and the heads rolled horribly with glaring eyes, and the limbs and torsos writhed on their imperial couches amid clotted blood. Then, with no backward look, knowing that all was done as had been ordained and predicted from the first, the mummy of Hesteon left the necromancers to their doom, and went wearily through the nighted labyrinth of vaults to rejoin Ilero. So in tranquil silence, with no further need of words, Ilero and Hesteon passed through the open door of the nether vault, and Ilero locked the door behind them with its key of untarnished bronze, and thence by the coiling stairs they wended their way to the verge of the sunken flames, and were one with their kinfolk and their people in the last ultimate nothingness. But of Matmuar and Sadozma men say that their quartered bodies crawl to and fro to this day in Ithilreum finding no peace or respite from their doom of life and death, and seeking vainly through the black maze of nether vaults the door that was locked by Elero. Well, as our sorcerer friends found out, and as many before and after them have discovered, messing with the dark arts never ends well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ink and Ash. For all things Ink and Ash, please visit inkandashpod.com. On the next episode, Agatha Christie makes her triumphant return to the show. What mystery will she have in store for us? Well, you'll just have to tune in for that. Until then, this has been Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next time.